Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast for this episode we're sticking in Ireland. We're going down to Kerry to be joined by Mike Webster, founder and CEO of Arevio. I hope I pronounced that Mike right. Aravoya. Apologies. You're very welcome to the show. It's all right. There's a lot of vowels. <laughs> <laughs> there sure is. Mike, we discussed off air with uh, the, the form of the podcast. So I'd like to go back to your early days. You grew up in Kerry. Any favorite memories or stand up memories from your childhood growing up in Kerry? Cork bit. So I grew up in Cork, actually. So it's, uh, so I grew up in Cork um, and yeah, I emigrated to Kerry after kind of a circuitous route around various places uh, about 15, 16 years ago, but I'm firmly Cork stuck in Kerry. Um, so, but yeah, so memories of growing up would have been, you know, Cork, College in Limerick, Dublin, and then here. Okay. Sticking with your early days, yeah, I, I, I like to ask the question around inspiration impact. So anyone you think who inspired you a lot, whether a teacher, uh, a close relative, a family member, or like who had a big impact on the person you've turned out to be today? I think outside of outside of family, which is obviously the major the major pillar in your life, the major impact, my English teacher, Barry Collins, was the was the probably the formative teacher, my formative influence in terms of he taught me and the rest of my class uh, how to form a thought, how to architect a thought, how to create a story arc and how to be able to, to elucidate a story, I suppose, and how to, to clarify your thoughts, thinking, and how to be able to explain that. Um, and the and kind of really methodical and that really has been the foundation of everything I've done since. You know, the understanding of and everything from like taking large amounts of data and how to explain that to a human being, for example, um, and and how to understand uh, you know the philosophy of thinking and so on. So he was he was like a major influence, I suppose. Um, and I use what I've learned from him more than anything else, like hourly, hourly since it's mad. And leaving cert uh, honors English teacher. Yeah. Well, shout out to to Barry himself. A couple of things I know about you before we get into business: Munster rugby fan, father. You've been skiing, surfing. What's one thing you're into that not a lot of people would know about you? One thing I'm into? Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose um, I suppose my, my reading topics, you know, the things that I have a kind of an academic interest in is behavioral economics and quantum physics um, as pastimes. Um, and, you know, there's not, <laughs> it's not many people you can sit in the pub and have a chat with on that. And the behavioral economics is becoming more mainstream. So you can have some, you know, Dan Ariely, I met him and... and uh, one of the really great thinkers in, in behavioral economics. And if I was to do a do-over on what I did in the past, I would definitely focus on behavioral economics. I think it's a, a just the future of, of huge aspects of business and life. So uh, yeah, outside of that, my, my, my personal life is, is water-based. Yeah, so surfing, windsurfing, swimming, uh, paddleboarding and, and that. So that's, that's my kind of, that's my go-to. But academically, yeah, um, I've always been kind of curious about quantum physics. So read a lot of as digestible books as I get my hands on on that. Um, and I'm still as confused as ever. 
you talk about academically, well, you, and you said you went to UL. I know that you studied engineering in yeah. UL. You subsequently went down through a master's in UCD in finance and marketing. Yeah. What was it that piqued your interest initially in engineering? Again, was it a school teacher? No, pure random. Like, it was pure random. I remember I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, I think a lot of kids come out of school really have fundamentally no idea. And I would have been a kind of a generalist. You know, I wasn't, a, you, know, to, you know, I was kind of like across many subjects. So I literally picked it out of the, I wanted to go to UL or NAHEs was then. So I just got the prospectus, opened the book, saw a photograph of a guy in a fab suit with a silicon wafer. And so I'll do that. So um, it was a mixture between engineering and business. So the business piece, I like the engineering, brutal, like just brutal. Um, and uh, but a good discipline, you know, how to understand something that you just don't, you don't really understand. You know, there's guys naturally gifted in, business, in engineering. I wasn't, so I had to apply myself. So I learned more about the application to try and understand stuff as opposed to the, as opposed to the actual outcome. So, uh, so there's no inspiration. But then the MBA was um, the inspiration that was curiosity, I suppose. Um, and uh, did that kind of an executive two year. Um, in UCD, and that was awesome. The reason that was awesome is that you're split into groups, and then it was a group of five or six lads <clears throat> in my group. Uh, there was no women in my group, and uh, we became very close friends, learned a huge amount off each other, and an enormous amount. And they've gone on to do very successful things, CEO of DCC, you know, so they've all done different things, and uh, but we're still very close friends. So <clears throat> that, ex that experience was, was incredible. Um, um, it was finance, I suppose it was kind of finance marketing, you know, like an MBA general, generalist, but those are the pieces that I kind of focused on. You spent 15 years in, or 15 to 20 years in the corporate world, <clears throat> then you founded Mobacar. Any lessons that you learned or highlights from those 15, 20 years that you could carry over that may have helped you prevent making mistakes when you founded Mobacar? <laughs> Great question. Um, uh, no, I don't think there's anything to prepare you for the mistakes, except are you just resilient enough to, to take them on the chin? You know, so it's more of a character thing. I, I, I think there's nothing, uh, you, you know, it's so unpredictable. You know, the startup journey is so unpredictable and it's quite, it is quite different to, to corporate, but you learn an awful lot of, you know, the, I suppose you, you get fit in terms of like business fit in corporate to a degree um so you know the basics <clears throat> you know that you know things you know you know how to effectively run a compliant business how to run a business that is uh that is um structured correctly you know and in recruitment and all the basic stuff you, you can get kind of get well you can you know get a good grounding in from from corporate life but crikey when you um but there's nothing really that can train you for the mistakes you're going to make because you're just going to make lots of them there's a document I came across a couple of months ago that said that uh, people who set their business from 35 onwards are more likely to be successful and successful means their business is more likely to survive past five years than those who started in the earlier years. I'm 28. I've been self-employed for six, six and a half years. Yeah. So I haven't got any corporate experience. But my question is a follow-up to the first question is, do you think people should spend some time working for others to gain experience before going out alone? Um, I don't know. Like it depends on the individual. You know, some people I, I'd suggest wouldn't even go to college, right? They just you know go and work for a startup or go and work on their own project from 16, 17, 18. You know, so that, that's mm -hmm. some people. 
um, I think uh, there's always, I think if you're okay with the insecurity, there's lots of insecurity no matter what you do. So if you do startup early, you're insecure going, oh my God, do I know enough? You know, or what's going on in the corporate world? And you might see your friends, you know, take off and you seem to be, you know, plowing away on your own. You're wondering, my God, should I have done that? Look at these guys, you know, they're doing that. And so if you can avoid the relative comparisons uh, and similarly, what happens then later on is guys who are in corporate and they're going to be like, oh, I'm doing great in corporate and guys and girls. And then you hit your thirties or whatever. And, and you're kind of, you know, stabilizing and you're like, okay, you know, this, and then the guy who's working on his own is starting to do it. He's like, oh, I should have done that. So this, we have this thing about the fear of missing out, you know, in, in, depending on what choice you have in, you know, in your career. So I'd say no, it depends on the individual. Overall, I'd say it depends on the individual. So um, I just feel fundamentally, it's a totally personal thing. I don't think there's ever a too early a time to do your own thing. Because I, I, I think you learn, like if I was recruiting somebody and then said, what have you done for the last eight years? And they said, oh, I've been doing the same way you're doing. I've been, you know, setting up a business, been podcasting, whatever else you're going to go. Well, there's a guy who get up and go. And that's, and you can't quantify that than, you know, somebody who's working for somebody else. So I'd say there's never a good enough time for me, as you said about the age thing, I think definitely I'm older than, you know, than a lot of startups. Um, not a lot, but, <clears throat> but there's a kind of a, a patience that you develop, um, mm. resiliency that you develop naturally in life as you get older. And I think you can apply that to business. So that does help. You know, you can embrace ambiguity better. You know, you don't mind being perplexed as you get a bit older because you're going to go, well, you know, if I'm perplexed, that means I'm learning. So that's okay. You know what I mean? So I think uh so i think there's benefits you know what i mean but i would say to anybody uh, what do i know right but i was you know i think there's never a bad time to go at your own and even if that's at 18 16 15 whatever because you can always loop back and then loop back out again i did that a couple of times <clears throat> you know you can dip in and out but i think you've got the gumption to go and do your own thing initially you know yeah yes, that's a massive that that stands head and shoulders above i think just somebody going into the corporate life that's my opinion unless like you're in professional services like law and, and you know doctor and whatever else that's you know you need to but outside of that in business <clears throat> i think now there's a lot more flexibility to to try things than there would have been before before you'd be on a career the idea of a career even the the origins of the word you know you're on this momentum not, not so much try this and then if that doesn't work try that start a business fail go into corporate come back out go back in again you know um mightn't suit most people because they need the stability of a trajectory but i'd say no yeah I'm with you on that. Mobile car, the business you founded since rebranded to what it is today. Uh, you said the uh, idea uh, came from conversations with a maths lecture. What was the problem that you could see? Um, yeah. And well, talk to me through that discussion. Yeah. So mobile car was that's 2014, and it was ultimately it was a car rental ground transportation booking engine. So imagine, you know, like a, like a car trawler or something, but really small <laughs> in comparison. And, uh, and what we were trying to do is we were trying to figure out how do we outperform bigger competitors? So when somebody looks at our product, you know, on a booking engine, we plug it into, you know, online travel agencies and airlines and whatever else. So when you're looking, they're looking for a car or a ground transportation. We try to figure out how do we figure out what a customer really wants instead of having to go and search for it. So the, here's your car and here's your insurance type and whatever else. So <clears throat> we, um, it was only in a curiosity. It was like, how do you figure out what people want? So, and this was kind of a little bit ahead of the, the surge in like what Netflix recommendations and, you know, and Facebook content curation 
And so, yeah, so I had a conversation with a guy in a, in a coffee shop in Fix in Dublin, as it was then. And he said, hey, listen, you know, go and talk to this guy. I went to him, he said, yeah. He said, listen, people's behavior is unpredictable, but that unpredictability is measurable. And you can determine, if you understand human behavior, what somebody wants to see, the product, the message, the offer, the display. Uh, and he gave me some case studies of other businesses where if understanding behavior, uh, uh, understanding behavior, if you understand that correctly, <clears throat> you can curate stuff. So we, we've started plugging some AI into our own booking engine and then it started to really perform, <clears throat> like really perform, outperform, you know, um, some of the larger booking engines out there. So we said, so at that point, it was 2015. At that point, I decided, you know, where's the product here? You know, is it, the, is it this car rental business <clears throat> or is it this AI business? You know, and can we, can we build the AI and give that to other people <clears throat> as a plugin so that they can reform their customer experience without having to invest in the AI? And then that was the journey. That was a, you know, four year investment journey where we raise some money, but also we're profitable <clears throat> and we use the cash from operations each year to, you know, we literally double the team and have half the team working on AI and half the team working on car. That makes sense. It sure does. I was unsure about asking this question, so feel free to not answer it if you wish. But um, I know that you've spoken out about Facebook and Google's uh, sale of people's data. Yeah. Um, if you could paint the perfect scenario, and I imagine that's going to probably get more interesting in terms of people's data, particularly in this country over the next few weeks. Yeah. Uh, if you could paint the perfect scenario with data and how companies use it, what would that be? <clears throat> like, I think... It, since I made those comments, you know, there's been a lot of movement, I suppose, particularly from the EU uh, and in the US. <clears throat> um, the the US is coming out with, it's going to be very interesting over the next six or seven or eight months, um, new AI legislation, right? Because there's surveillance, there's surveillance technology everywhere, right? So uh, Apple are getting pretty good, but, but Facebook in particular have surveillance technology. So they know, you know, they can you know, your behavioral profile, your individual behavioral profile, your name, your address, whatever, and then being able to sell products against that. People are okay with that up to a point. Um, but there's very little regulation on, there's regulation on the, you know, data security, but on how your data is used, there's not an awful lot of regulation. Now that's changing. So the EU is coming out with regulations. They're looking at, so they're, they're coming out with this thing called ethical AI, um, and AI that is fundamentally good and then fundamentally can be misused. So they're starting off in the US with, with uh, regulation around um, AI and financial services. Um, so what, what, so when I made those comments, it was like that, that it was that the owners of the AI have all the power. So Google, Facebook, you know, Amazon, Apple. And when I say the owner of the AI, <clears throat> very powerful ability to have surveillance capital over people um, <clears throat> and understand and, and outsmart and outfox every other competitor. But the regulations coming in now where the application of ethical AI will have to you know, be within certain boundaries that it does no harm, that you know, that is beneficial for some reason and that it isn't being misused. And I think, so over the next six, seven months, you're going to start to see the, the, um, the initial legislation that from the EU and the US. Um, so what we're doing with our product is to make sure that it's, from the beginning, that the get-go is that it's auditable, transactional. So you can actually see how the AI is applied. You can see what models are applied and that they're ethically good for the customer and ethically good for the business. So, um, so I think the, uh, but I think the EU and the, in the US are, are highly aware of it now. And in, in the last, since April, they've been starting to publish information on how, how they're going to regulate 
the use of personal data and how AI is use, uses that data, specifically on AI. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. If, if you see me look to my right, I've got some stats that I'm reading. Yeah. So uh, forgive, forgive me if you see me looking here, but uh, you, you, you've helped uh, websites convert more uh, and generate higher revenue with personalization. Uh, which has resulted in thousands of human-driven A-B testing experiments made by over 4.6 million visitors to car around the websites. Yeah. This entire experience, as well as extensive research and development, help you realize that the best measures for understanding customer behavior are based on six key dimensions, time, intent, location, assets, price, and affinity. Can you talk on why price made that list? You mentioned things like last-clicked car and GDP in that document. Yeah. So, so our product has been focused on car rental, and we now launched it into, mm. into hospitality in the last three months, um, um, which is a much bigger market um, with much faster traction, actually. Um, so, yeah, so price is an interesting one, right? So, so we don't fundamentally use the AI to figure out what what you what price you want versus what price I. It doesn't. We don't change our customers' prices because that's dynamic pricing at customer level, which is I think is a gray area. But what it does do, you know, there's a very famous case. You know the case about the uh, about the economists and how they set their pricing structure. So for their subscription service. So if you, so <clears throat> so this is a quite a fascinating thing, but nothing to do with price modification, but how price is positioned. So they went out with three subscription services: one for fifty nine dollars, which is digital only. Then they went out one hundred twenty five dollars for print only subscription, and they went out with digital and print also for one hundred twenty five dollars. So when people looked at that, they went, okay, you know, you know, 60 bucks, 125, 125. And so look, for the 125 digital and print, it's the same price as the print. I'll go for the digital and print. So 84% of people went for the digital and print. So they paid $125, right? What they did then, and nobody went for the middle one. Nobody went for print only. They get rid of the print only version, then they do another test. And then it inverts. So they have nothing's changed. You just get rid of the print only. So now you have digital only, right? And digital and print. And 64% went for digital only this time, the lower priced one, and like 38% or 36% went for the other option. In other words, when people have a comparison to look at, so when you look at it, see people need to have relativity and value. People do not make rational choices. So when they look at the three options, they go, oh, look, the third option is much better than the second option. So I'm gonna book the third option, right? This has got nothing to do with whether it's $119 or 100, and people think that the way, uh, e-commerce is working is that you know you got to have your pricing exactly right and it has to be down to the decimal versus competitors no people don't make rational decisions so what our, our ai does is it understands okay what are you seeing so what is reen seeing and what does somebody with a mobile device of a certain size in a certain location from a certain lead time duration source market origin time combination gdp weather time year all that stuff in real time we run a specific model and you and you've come from a google ad there's one model for that. So we would have hundreds of models running for every, com every company, every company we work with. And it's basically trying to predict what do you need to see? So it is not just, you know, because you will want to see, you know, I'd say, you know, five-star hotel. And then inside that five-star hotel, you're going to want to see the lake view, not the garden view. You're going to have this image versus here. And you don't want to see all the packages. You just want to see one that is of a certain type, you know, certain room, certain rate type, for example. Uh, and you're going to want a certain message and you're going to have one a certain promotion and you don't want to go play pigeon shooting and blah, 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 right? So what we do is we plug into everybody's booking technology, elevate it in like a couple of weeks, two weeks, two and a half weeks. And now it becomes fully AI driven without them have ever having invested in it. So it's like we can Netflix the entire hospitality industry, similar to the car rental industry. 
So if you can imagine how tricky it is sometimes to go onto a hotel website, you know, and you're like, oh, mm. drug tape pigeon shooting, oh Jesus. And then you have like room with room without breakfast, with breakfast, room to room, Valentine's package. Oh Jesus Christ. It's called I was spoken one last night and I had that same experience. Tyranny of choice, right? Whereas what Netflix does, Netflix says, you know, we distill that all the thousands and thousands and thousands. We're going to say, no, we're going to, we're going to give you this order. We're going to scroll it from right to left, not left to right. And we're going to give you, for example, if you're looking at, you know, Netflix, it may say, okay, well, Goodwill Hunting, you're going to see Robin Williams because they, they've worked out that you're more comedic um, in, in preferences. And then they may show Matt Damon to your partner because your partner may be more you know, into action adventure, whatever else, right? That's mm. a tiny example. So the future of e-commerce and the future of retail is fully curated, fully, the customer fully under, is fully uh, understood respected and then everything is curated so we're not going to you're not hiking prices up for different people you're just giving them what they want so that example of you know one two three for the economist we do exactly that but to build that it's you know it's you know sub 200 milliseconds mass cloud compute billions of variables and then we cut and run hundreds of best book models for each customer and we do that on an industrial scale we can cut and run a model that will try and make the prediction in 20 minutes takes uber two weeks so yeah so i get very excited when i start talking about the product because it's it, it's literally we firmly believe and, and we didn't we didn't i didn't always have this feeling that jesus we're onto something you know i always like oh you know we did this and but now we've <clears throat> we didn't even launch we're not even launching that product for hospitality until september um we're we've uh, worked with a big large which next week we announced with a, a large irish hotel the irish uk hotel group <clears throat> ten thousand rooms and then there's two other deals across 24,000 hotels that are going to take it. And this is just from my desk. And this is just, you know, I mean, just the start. Um, so any company that has legacy technology, they basically say, I don't know, I can change my technology. I'm just going to plug into this thing. And it's going to make my technology look and act and behave like booking.com, for example, or Facebook or mm. Netflix, if that makes sense. I've charged <laughs> all over that answer, by the way, which I usually Yeah, no, <laughs> congrats. Um, what I'll do, I'm, I'm leaving, gonna leave links to your LinkedIn, your website as well, but I'll also leave a link to the section on your website that shows where people can access that document that I'm that I'm referring to. A yeah. rather interesting read. What's your favorite aspect of leading the company? I, it, 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 um, I suppose leading is a different question than, than, than running the company. You know what I mean? So for, for, from a leadership perspective, um, that's really, it's a hard one because sometimes I don't feel I'm actually the leader. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 I know I have to make some decisions on like what industry we're in, what product, what the problem is that we're fixing, how we're addressing that, what's compelling and unique and what are unfair advantages, uh, and then promoting that. So that's what I do. And um, but I have other stronger people in my business who are better leaders in terms of better people leaders than I ever be. Do you know what I mean? So I have, you know, David Gregg, who's my chief technology officer, who is just legendary in terms of his ability to run across the business. You know what I mean? In terms of not just the technology, Robin DeYoung, uh, South African origin, lives in Killarney, and uh, uh, she is probably the, the, the best people leader I've ever seen. So leadership is a strange one in a startup because I'm not particularly good at leading people. I am good at predicting what business we should be in and how to survive and how to elude, how to tell our story. Do you know what I mean? And how to mm -hmm. bring customers. Um, 
So, but I do lead the business. So I lead the business, but then the leadership of the people is kind of not really, I'm not really, I have my own team and, and I wouldn't, they wouldn't say I'm a great leader, I wouldn't suspect in terms of, you know, but they will follow me into the trenches. You know, so maybe that's leadership, you know what I mean? So, but I don't inculcate a leadership style or quality or whatever, because I wouldn't know where to start. Um, but my team are very, very tuned in to their, to the, their teams and how they operate and run. And then by definition, they make me look good because I'm tuned into them. So, but leading the company, the thing I love about that is the risk. I absolutely love the inherent risk. And that's the fact we've been loads of times where you get smacked around the face and you think, oh my God, we are F tier. Um, and then you go, oh no, you can think your way around it, find a better solution, find a better problem for the customer, fix something else. And then onwards you go again. Um, now that's stabilizing now as we're getting better. So, uh, uh, but yeah, that's leading the company uh, in trying to solve problems. That's just, that's fantastic. You know, that's just intellectually, it's probably the most stimulating thing you can do, I think. A question I don't ask too many is, do you think being the owner slash founder of a business gives you true freedom or the illusion of freedom? Um, so you're great. That's a, that's a top-notch question. So it gives you absolute freedom because you're absorbing the entire risk for your future. Right? You're not disseminating risk of what your future is going to outcome, the outcome of your future to anybody else, right? So you're not relying on, you know, your corporate leader, you know, all hail leader to basically, you're not, you're not relying on anybody else for your future. So you, if you're working for, you know, one of the big tech companies, they're going to be around, right? And you have a job there and whatever else, you've got security. So you have freedom because you can do things because you know you've got that security or is that the reverse? Is that you've actually got no freedom? In it, when you're running your own company, you have, uh, you have real freedom in terms of determining where your future is going to go, but less freedom in terms of the options you can do in terms of, uh, in terms of your time, you know, you've less freedom in terms of mental space, you've less freedom in terms of like uh, daily security, you know, all those things. So once on a macro scale, if you look back in your life and you, you, you kind of go, that decision meant that I literally beat my own path that's freedom, that's ultimate freedom, right? Um, and it's hard and it's difficult and it's challenging. But I think at a macro scale, that's ultimately freedom. On a micro scale, when I look at my day and whatever else in your, and you kind of go, you know, it's uh, your own time is gone because your job becomes your life very much so. And, uh, and I don't mean necessarily you're sitting and working, but you're literally, I would say 90% thinking about your business all, all, every waking hour and, and that's not a bad thing it's not like you're preoccupied um, it's just that there's always a problem to fix and it's always festering so your mind capacity isn't free you know you can't switch there's no such thing as switching off um, but to for certain people that's a really good you know to have a problem to be fixing all the time I think is a really good thing so mm -hmm. over your lifespan definite freedom if you looked at into your in one into my brain right now, you go, God, there's no there's no space there, you know. Um, and that's why would you do that kind of a job? That's just mental. Um, but I think ultimately it creates life freedom. But day to day, it's yeah. Do you have more freedom in corporate minute to minute? I'd imagine. Two final questions. One is um, for our listeners, America. I'm referencing high school, and the UK and Ireland. I'm referencing secondary school. But if you could add a topic that is mandatory to students is not currently on the curriculum and you had the ultimate the final decision making power what topic 
would you add to the curriculum? So I'm assuming that, that there's maths and physics already there. Right? Yes. Definitely, definitely maths, right? And English, but I presume so they're like they're as important. I know everybody in tech talks all oh, maths, maths, I get it. English is as important. You know, the ability to understand people and create story and understand that for a startup is really important. Um, but I would love, and maybe I'm totally biased on this, but behavioral economics is one of the most fascinating topics that uh, merges psychology and economics uh, and the application of AI now to understand people's behavior. And that whole space is unbelievably fascinating. Now, and the reason I say that for high school or for secondary is I did some talks here in the local school on behavioral economics <clears throat> in secondary school. And it's, and, and it's very relatable because you can say, well, so this is how Facebook is working. This is what Netflix is working. And this is what, you know, and, and this is how, you know, traffic lights are working. And this is how, so it literally is across all parts of life. And what it does is a great gateway, curiosity gateway into other aspects of whether it's prediction or it's maths or it's engineering or it's uh, even marketing. So behavioral economics, I think is just the best subject ever. I'd love to do a redo on it. Yeah. yeah. All your loved ones are safe, but your house is burning down and you can only save one item. What one item would that be? Uh, nothing. Nothing, okay. There's no thing. There's like no thing that's really that important. So assuming my, family, my loved ones and family are safe and the rest of it, like I'm not, not gonna run around thinking there's something of any, <clears throat> there's any material thing that's of any worth um, that can't be replaced. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, you know, so I wouldn't waste my time. I'd say that's, you know, I'd bugger off. I wouldn't, I would literally wouldn't, um, no, there's, there's no. You're the first person to, to, to answer that. The closest to getting to answer that was someone said they'd want to go to the fridge to get some food because they'd be hungry. Other than that, everyone else has chosen laptop, photo album, phone. You're the first person to choose nothing. Nice. Yeah. So if you haven't already taken photographs and, and uploaded your physical photo albums to the cloud, you, you know, you've kind of made a mistake. Because like yeah. anyway, the great thing about great thing about you know, permanent storage is that you can have all of your memories accessible. So I think outside of that, and there, there are th things that have, uh, there are things that have, uh, like I have loads of things that have sentimental value. Um, but, uh, but the sentimentality isn't in a thing. It just reminds you of that thing. So it's easy to remind yourself about something else. Mike, I've had a great pleasure spending the last 30, 35 minutes chatting to you. I wish you continued success. Uh, but for today, thank you for being my guest. Cheers, Rip. Nice to meet you. Thanks a lot. If your metro don't trust you, I'm going to show you. Beautiful morning. Get a sign of my morning, babe. Nothing in the